this being the season, let me start by telling a Christmas story. It was about 40 years ago. I was in my early 20s. And my wife and I were in the Peace Corps serving as teachers in Malaysia. It was approaching Christmas, and we were visiting our friends in the Malay village, the Kampong, across the river. This was the family that had sort of adopted us. Malays are Muslim, and I was curious to know how Jesus is regarded in Islam. And several of the village men were sitting with us on the porch of the family's home where we lived, where we were visiting. And we talked about that, me with my very limited Malay, did the best I could. I was surprised, for example, to learn that in Islam, Jesus is regarded as the Messiah, as the Son of God. I didn't know that. That was news to me. And they explained their traditional story of the miraculous birth of Jesus, which is quite different from the story in the Bible that I grew up with. In that story, Mary gave birth under a date tree, which miraculously bore fruit out of season in order to nourish her and the baby. Again, that was interesting to me. I hadn't known that. And then it was my turn, and I tried as best I could to explain the Bible story, not knowing, for example, the Malay word for manger, but I did my best. And as I was struggling with those words, trying to explain this, I saw on their faces the same expression that I must have had on mine while I was listening to them. Right? Interesting. What a peculiar myth that is. <laughs> and to see that reflected back at me was one of those times when it really hit me and I really caught sight of my cultural frame of reference, right? the, the mental box that I grew up in. And it bothered me a little bit to see, to be the recipient of that condescension. Because even though I didn't believe the Bible's story either, still, it was my story, right? It's the one that I grew up with, and it was more legitimate than their story. <laughs> At least to me, right? So we had different stories of how Jesus was born. Now, 40 years ago, what struck me most was this visceral gut-level realization that came with that, that my world, my world up here, was not the world. As Douglas Adams wrote, he was constantly reminded of how startlingly different the world was when viewed from a point only three feet to the left. Now that lesson got reinforced multiple times during our two years there, as you can imagine. I'll give you one other example. As I said, we were serving as school teachers and on occasion, we had, a, we had an opportunity to visit students' families in their home. And one day, as we approached a student's house, we saw rabbit hutches out front and rabbits. And so we said, rabbits, interesting. Do you raise them for food? What a look of disgust. Food, obviously, rabbits were pets. And so we learned a lesson about cultural sensitivity. And we had taught them something about Americans. 
Americans eat their pets. <laughs> so, Reverend Linda told me that your theme this month has been community, comfort the afflicted. There's a deep connection, I think, between compassion and the virtue of humility. Compassion, of course, means that you feel with someone. And, and that requires that we break out of our, our egocentric walls a little bit and let the reality of another person's life become our reality also, at least to some extent. Spending some time with another culture certainly helps to do that. There are many ways to do that. You don't have to travel around the world. You don't have to travel too far. Sometimes three feet is enough. Let me go back to this Christmas story thing. Our EU congregation in Phoenix does an interesting and, and rather charming version of the nativity story on Christmas Eve. It's a story, of the, the, there's a reenactment of the nativity, but it's a little different, okay? The, the ad hoc volunteers are called up as, as needed, and they take the roles as required of stars and shepherds, wise persons, and there are various animals, sheep, goats, a parrot, a giraffe, and a pterodactyl. Whatever the RE director had upstairs when they put this thing together several years ago. And then the cast is assembled as needed as the story progresses. For example, at one point the narrator says, now we need three people to be shepherds, one who can read. Now, being you use, the emphasis is not on Jesus as Savior, but as this child who brings hope and light into the world. So this Christmas story persists in multiple versions. I've mentioned three. There's a Christian version that most of us are aware of, the Muslim version, and the UU version. <laughs> and 60-odd years after my own birth, and 40-some years after living in this very different culture, what I'm struck with is the fact that we are still telling these stories. That, and what is it about this person, Jesus of Nazareth, that has prompted the creation and persistence of these absolutely unbelievable stories? What can a Christian, a Muslim, a humanist, an atheist, take away, a Unitarian Universalist even, take away from, from that life? Is there a nugget of real value that is worth digging for during these shortest of days? Clearing through all the accumulated dogma of 2,000 years on one hand and all the, the consumer clutter that afflicts us, especially in this season, with the other. And for me, that nugget is what to me is the, the key message of Christianity. It's Jesus' teaching that the love of God, as he explains to God, oh God, encompasses everyone, even and especially the poor, the outcast, the expendables, the different, the Samaritans, the infidels, 
And the expectation, the really impossible expectation that we will do our best to try to live that kind of love in our own lives. All of us. Even those of us for whom the idea of God is a myth. Because after all, just because something is a myth doesn't mean that it isn't true. Now living that kind of love is, is hard. I mean, it's, it's really impossible. Because it isn't the natural thing to do. It isn't natural at all. The most natural thing in the world is to draw our circle of concern tightly around those whom we know best. is to protect and promote our own tribe, especially in times of trouble and fear. And we are facing some such times now, and we are hearing many who are calling for our circle to be drawn tighter, for the walls to be made taller, and for doors to be closed. That is the natural thing to do. It is not what Jesus of Nazareth would have us do. It's not what Gandhi would have us do. Or for that matter, Ahmad Hanafiya, the father in the family that welcomed us in that family in Malaysia. Hanafiya, or Pachik, as he was known in the family, brought us in, infidels, into his family and his community and made us welcome. Now I'm going to show you just a few slides of that family at that time. So if you could bring that up. He was uh, well-respected in the community. He was a teacher in the primary school. And this is the group with, uh, the community was out doing some, uh, as I recall, this was 40 years ago, I'm trying to remember exactly, but they were essentially clearing a road, doing some community work to, to improve, improve their location. Next one, please. And this is, this is Machi. This is his wife and their youngest, youngest child in the... Uh, cradle, which was a sarong, suspended from the rafters. Next one, please. This is the whole family, nine kids. Um, you can tell which ones don't belong. <laughs> we didn't wear that kind of clothing all the time, but that's what we were wearing for this, this picture. We were, had traditional Malay garb on non-traditional Malay people. But there's, back up, please, there's, Pachi, Machi, and the youngest. And then the girl sitting, standing next to me was Zaharatul. She was uh, just finishing high school, about to go off to college. So they had a, a large family, a very loving family. And then uh, the, the woman on the far right on your picture, standing next to my wife, was the grandmother, known as Pa. I could hardly ever understand anything she said. Although occasionally, this was funny, she would tap my wife's belly and say, no babies yet? <laughs> okay, went the last slide then. Okay, and this is just another picture of the group of us as we were starting to go from house to house during the month, at the end of the month of Ramadan, which I'll speak about in a minute. But my, my point here is this, the humanity. You know, everybody's... You know. But for us to be in the Peace Corps and get a chance to actually live with folks who live differently was extraordinarily important for us as young people. 
Thanks. Muslims fast during the month of Ramadan, neither eating or drinking from the first light of dawn until sunset. They do that to be reminded of what it means to be hungry and thirsty and to have to do without. The end of Ramadan is the biggest holiday of the year. In Malaysia, it's called Hari Raya Puasa, the celebration of the end of the fast. Families gather and feast and they go from house to house through the village, sampling the sweets of the food and also the sweets of being in community. Pachi and Machi and their nine children brought us along, and everyone was, was warm and gracious. We are hearing many now who are calling for our circle to be drawn tighter and for walls to be made higher and for doors to be closed. Are we not better than that? Is this not the country that started the Peace Corps? Is this not America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Principles are only useful when they're tested. And is this not when we need to hear most clearly the call to be loving and open? and to commit to that. There are many in this world and in this country who are afflicted. This is not the time to shut down and turn inward. There are five key commandments to Muslim life, the five pillars of Islam, and one of them is charity, to give alms to the poor. It's interesting to me that our UU principles make no real such clear demands of us. You can argue that to affirm and promote justice, equity, and compassion in human relations and the goal of world community with peace, justice, and liberty for all, those are all consistent with showing compassion and the call to be charitable. But we don't actually say, get out there and provide comfort. It's also noteworthy, kind of as a sidebar, that our statement over the seven principles never actually mentions the word love. Think about it. Nevertheless, nevertheless, the call to stand on the side of love is central to our faith, just as it is to the best of all faiths. As Cory Booker writes, don't speak to me about your religion. First, show me how you treat people. Don't tell me how much you love your God. Show me how much you love all God's children. Don't preach to me your passion for your faith. Teach me through your compassion for your neighbors. In the end, I'm not as interested in what you have to tell me or sell me as I am in how you choose to live and to give. The new year approaches. Now let's go into it with love and courage and have it written that we were among those who loved our fellow men.